0: So there's a lot of information out there about vaccination, particularly because of everyone's interest in the creation of a vaccine uh, against COVID-19. So in light of that, I think that what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a basic overview and premise of uh, how vaccinations work and sort of amazing things um, that have been achieved because of that in the pre-COVID era. So when we talk about a vaccine, the idea is that a vaccine is something that modifies your immune response to your benefit. It's not giving an antibiotic, it's not giving you a germ that is going to fight the infection for you. It's not giving you a medicine that's going to fight the infection for you. It is training your immune response to fight the infection for you. And it induces a long-lasting immune effect, so it makes you resistant to the infection. The aim is to do so with minimum side effects, and usually it's made of components of a pathogen. Now, we use the word vaccination and immunisation interchangeably in this instance. So the principle of vaccination is if you know about primary and secondary immune responses, is the first time you have an immune response to something, it takes a little bit of time, and the second time you have an immune response to the same thing, the response is bigger, it's better, it's faster, everything is just better and vaccination works on that principle. So the vaccine the first time gives your immune system the training it needs so it actually creates an, a primary immune response but without many of the side effects. You know if you have a flu jab you might feel a little bit under the weather, but it's not like having two weeks of flu laying on a bed in a sweat with your shins aching. So it's, it's really a sort of it's a mild aversion and you get a toxoid or you know some sort of element of the pathogen that will stimulate your immune system enough to convince it that you have uh, and some sort of uh, infection, but you don't you just have an element of it. So you create this primary antibody response uh, where you produce lots of antibodies, you produce T cells. and in doing so you will also create memory cells along the way. Then comes the day when you do get the infection, you get the real thing, a natural infection. And this one hasn't had bad bits removed, this is the real deal. Now, because you have had memory cells formed when you had that vaccination, you find you get this uh, secondary antibody response, this acquired immunity, which is much quicker. It's bigger and it doesn't allow the virus to take hold so quickly you have antibodies present in about two to three days where it would have taken seven or eight days before, and that makes a re- that's a really big deal, um, and it can sort of save your life. So we're talking about giving someone a medicine. We really want it to be completely safe. There's no point in giving someone a medicine where you know it's going to kill you. It defeats the object of giving someone a medicine. It's completely safe. It needs to be easy to administer, so... People don't like needles, so a lot of medicines um, you can have sort of up the nose, for example, in a single dose. Um, so easy to administer, single dose, needle free. Cheap. We'd like it to be cheap because ultimately the people that need it can't afford it. It needs to be cheap. It needs to be stable so that when you have these medicines being kept in sort of, you know, in a hospital in any part of the world, whether it be hot, whether it be cold... They don't go off. We'd like it to be active against all variants, although that's not always possible, particularly with flu, because viruses mutate. Viruses mutate the entire time. So you produce an immune response against one variant of the virus and then the virus mutates and you have to do it all over again. So if you're giving someone a vaccine, it would be nice if your vaccine could kind of preempt that and also have a long life protection. That would be nice, wouldn't it? The most famous for British people anyway the most famous um, sort of example of primary vaccination although again as I've said in a previous podcast give credit to the Chinese who were doing this in 200 BCE in 1798 that's a couple you know a couple of thousand years later Edward Jenner realized that milkmaids who had uh, basically milking the cows, they had contracted the cowpox, but they were protected from smallpox infection. Now, smallpox was a very, very nasty, contagious virus. And in fact, the uh, inoculations in 200 BC by the Chinese were actually dried out. Um, so I, I read uh, bits of um, smallpox up the nose. So smallpox, we were trying to fight this for thousands of years. And Edward Jenner recognised that milkmaids who had been you know milk in the cows had were protected from from smallpox they didn't get it and he demonstrated that you could take material from a cowpox infected individual and give it to someone else and protect that unexposed person so i think he took a child and uh, essentially that child became protected from smallpox the ethics of doing this and whether you could do that these days the answer would be no, but in those days, seventeen ninety-eight, I think the the rights of children weren't recognised, really, were they? So in I believe it was nineteen eighty, uh, there was a smallpox was eradicated from the planet. I think there were two vials contained uh, in two labs on either side of the planet, just in case we the smallpox ever re er- you know resurrects itself. You never know. I think with all the global warming, you, f- you might find a body or two that have got smallpox. So you find that uh, smallpox was eradicated through a global initiative to vaccinate as many people as possible. Other to other very famous um, sort of people is Pas- Louis Pasteur, Pasteur of the pasteurization, Pasteur of the Pasteur pipette. In 1870, he inoculated sheep with heat-treated anthrax and discovered you could confer protection across them. And also that antigen exposure was necessary to prime the immune system. So you needed to have that element, the antigen, the protein, the thing, uh, was enough to, to give your immune system the initiative it needed to get started. You didn't need the whole thing. Now one of the problems that you may or may not not know about viral infection is that there is an incubation period where you have the virus but you don't necessarily display any symptoms. And that's because the virus is busy populating itself and travelling and it's not doing anything at this point and your immune system hasn't created a response against it because ultimately the symptoms you experience are your immune system fighting the infection. It takes with smallpox... About 12 days before you start getting little tiny pustules and macules, I think they're called. And you start to get fevers, spiking fevers. And you only really get pustules, like the proper smallpox scabby things, about two weeks into the incubation period. About two weeks following the end of the incubation period. So we're talking about 27 days, about a month almost, of having this virus before our immune system is able to kick it and get rid of it and then ultimately the pox is scab over. By the time you have a scabbed over pox, you no longer have a fever, you no longer have any virus, a viremia, uh, no secretions and you've got a body full of antibodies. So at this point when you have a pustule or a pox scab, even chicken pox is the same, once, once those things are scabbed over, it's an indication that your immune system has won. That particular fight. So there are lots of uh, infectious diseases for which we like to, uh, you know, cure ourselves, and you have to have a characteristic to be eradicable. So you, again, you need to be quite a stable target. You can't really mutate very much. It helps if there's no animal reservoir. So for example, rabies. You could inoculate every single person on the planet and then a dog comes out and nips you on the leg and then rabies comes back again. Rabies is a horrendous, horrendous uh, virus to get. So another, another characteristic would, love, would, would be ultimately be that you could stop someone from transmitting it. So it would be nice if you could have a disease which didn't transmit itself. So say, for example, you have the disease but you can't give it to someone else. That would be ideal as well to be able to diagnose people easily and reliably. One of the issues um, with COVID is the fact that people don't know that they have, the, have COVID and are still going around and transmitting it. Whereas if you could easily and reliably diagnose people quickly and effectively, you could then stop you and just say, look, I'm not going to go to school for the next two weeks because I've got COVID. Whereas if people got, uh, it's September, I've got a little bit of a sore throat, probably just it's just the seasonal sort of thing it's not a dangerous thing I I can't tell that so it's really it would be helpful if we have easy and reliable diagnostics. Pasteur's principle for creating a vaccine is therefore to um, is to isolate whatever it is that you are wanting to um, vaccinate against then so you isolate it so in this case anthrax he used then inactivate it so that it's not live, so you simply have the shell of the bacterium or the bits of the virus that doesn't actually work, and then inject it into someone. Common human vaccines can exist in many, many different forms. You can They can be whole organisms, so they can be whole bacteria and whole viruses. So it could be a toxoid, for example, diphtheria and tetanus toxin. Toxoids are produced from the pathogen, and they stimulate an immune response that can also be recognised by receptors on the surface of your immune cells, those pathogen-associated molecular patterns. Other purified macromolecules that we can use instead of whole organisms are, for example, capsular polysaccharides, uh, for example, streptococcus pneumoniae, Neisseria meningitidis. And what you're looking at in this instance is the sugar coating of the bacterium without any of the insides there. It's like a scraped out, empty shell. And then finally, the surface antigen itself. So that's essentially a recombinant protein. So for example, hepatitis B, um, where you can make uh, an antigen where you can extract a bit of protein of your virus. And that is essentially what you erase your immune response against, not the whole organism. The whole organisms that you can give people, you have bacterial cells like anthrax, cholera, plague, typhoid, TB, or you have viral particles such as hepatitis, influenza, measles, mumps, polio, rabies, and yellow fever, rubella, uh, varicella, which is known as chickenpox to you and me. And Merck, between 1957 and 1985, did a lot in the discovery of certain vaccines. And actually, it was one man, a man called Morris Hillman, And he discovered the SV40 and the adenoviruses. He was the first person to purify interferon. And he invented more than 40 vaccines against measles, mumps, rubella, hepatitis A, hepatitis B, and chickenpox. And his vaccines save at least 8 million lives a year. And most people haven't heard of him. And what you can see is if you were to look at a graph of the incidence of thousands of cases of measles, polio, rubella and mumps from about the 1960s onwards, particularly polio the drop has gone from something you know like 40,000 cases, 600,000 cases um, to, to virtually nothing uh, into the 1980s because of the introduction of these life-saving um, vaccinations. Now what The biggest bone of contention with vaccinations that people seem to have is something called an adjuvant. And now an adjuvant is something that you give alongside in the the mix with your vaccine. And what it does is it amplifies the presence of the antigen. So it can stimulate your immune response and increase your response to a vaccine. So just in case you add this tiny little protein particle so that it doesn't get lost You essentially amplify, and you do this in using five mechanisms, these adjuvants. What they can do is they can translocate the antigen. That means it causes the movement of the antigens to the lymph nodes, rather than it just, say, for example, you have a jab in your arm. So rather than it just stay there, it can cause these proteins to move to your lymph nodes where they will have a greater chance of encountering T cells and activating your T cells. It also physically can, some of them physically protect the antigens, and this grants the antigen a prolonged delivery. So rather than the antigen just getting phagocytosed and removed as soon as you give it to them, it enables the antigen enough time to make it to the lymph nodes and it upregulates, therefore, the production of B and T cells needed for greater immunological memory. The other thing is that it can cause local reactions at the injection site. Now, if you've ever had Uh, sort of an injection and it feels really bruised and really tender that's your cytokines these local reactions and these you cause a greater release of danger signals by these chemokine releasing cells such as T helper cells and mast cells and it all kind of amplifies everything. The release of inflammatory cytokines recruits B and T cells at the sites of infection and also increases transcriptional events and also one of the last things it does is that it can increase the innate immune responses to the antigen. So the um, adjuvants can interact with pattern recognition receptors like toll-like receptors on your innate immune cells and cause them to get activated, cause them to phagocytose, cause them to migrate. So it causes that primary immune response to actually happen. Because there's nothing worse if you're going to have an antigen, you're going to go to that expense of having a needle stuck in your arm and, and have this thing that nothing happens. So... We're trying to make sure and ensure that that happens. We don't want to give you... A hu- Another way of making sure it happens is to give you a huge dose of the live virus. We don't want that because that would actually make you really, really sick. So what we do want to do is give you a tiny, 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 tiny amount of the real thing inactivated or a form of it or a toxoid from it, something that's going to cause your immune system to get reacted. However, we're going to amplify that with something that is not going to kill you so we're going to use these adjuvants to do that so what are adjuvants what actually are adjuvants they can be cytokines microparticles liposomes uh, vitamins mucosal binding proteins a whole range of things that can actually do all of those um, have all of those effects one of the problems is is that vaccines have been blamed for many things They've been blamed for increased disease severity, uh, insulin dependent diabetes, epilepsy, cerebral palsy, autism, sudden infant deaths, asthma, inflammatory bowel disease. I don't know, speak to an anti vaxxer. The list goes on and on and on. And in 1974, there was the first sort of vaccine alert where there were anecdotal reports that linked whooping cough and brain damage to the vaccine. And at what they found was that there was no link, but. At the time of vaccination in childhood, there is evidence of brain damage that does often appear at one to five years. And then what you found is, is that as soon as the vaccine coverage decreased because of people being frightened, you found the levels of whooping cough suddenly spiked. And that's what happens is if you reduce your vaccine coverage, you will get an increase in a spike. Now, all the way back to 1998, in the last century, guys, this is when it first came up, the vaccine alert, the anecdotal link between MMR and autism, and that it coincided, the peak onset of ovo-autism is normally one to five years, and this was um, linked by, particularly by Andrew Wakefield to having a triple vaccine. He himself at that time was trying to develop his own triple vaccine, and a lot of the statements he made came from uh, conferences and non-peer-reviewed data. As a consequence of this, vaccine rates fell from 92%, which is enough to confer herd immunity. Herd immunity means that you protect everybody. It fell from 92% to 88%. And as a consequence, measles notifications went up. More people got measles. Um, you die from measles. It's For some people, you die. For some people, uh, you have chronic damage. And following a national inquiry, following millions and millions and millions of pounds worth of expenditure into proving or disproving that there's never any link in the first place, there was no evidence of a link. If you ever want to really, really understand how devastating um, measles is, I suggest you read the letter that Roll Dahl the children's author, and also author and, and general polymath, wrote following the death of his daughter from measles. It's quite devastating, and it's quite emotional to read. It's a very simple thing, and it's essentially it just tells how he was one day playing with his daughter. She was recovering, but she got measles encephalitis, and she died. You die. Game over. It's finished. So for those of you who are a little bit uh, hesitant about vaccines... There is a point in your life where you have to actually trust people who spend all their time and all their lives developing vaccines. Um, And what we find is that now in Britain, the measles vaccine coverage has decreased to a point where we do have significant increases of deaths as a consequence. Another amazing uh, vaccine that has come out recently is the vaccine for cancer of the cervix. Uh, called Gardasil, and what this does is it stops warts on the cervix because it prevents... Cancer of the cervix is caused by human papillomavirus, and what this vaccine does is it stops the human papillomavirus from taking hold, and normally if you have cancer of the cervix, you get warts on your cervix, and ultimately you can die from cancer of the cervix. So we find that uh, there were issues, and are still issues, with the uptake of the Gardasil in the UK. Some of them have been unsubstantiated stories of girls who've had adverse reactions to the vaccines. Um, Another one is that having a vaccine that will prevent you getting cancer will promote promiscuity. Another one that is that it's purely aesthetical. And I don't know if anybody knows where the cervix is, but I've never seen it. Uh, And the other question is, why would you vaccinate boys? So to clear up all of those and address those, the reason for giving the vaccine is to protect people from genital warts and certain types of cancers, mouth cancers and throat cancers. And human papillomavirus, for which this is the vaccine against, is the most common sexually transmitted virus. And it's transmitted by both men and women, girls and boys, females, males, whatever you want to say. And according to the WHO, the World Health Organization, and the National Institutes of Health, HPV is the cause of virtually all cases of cervical cancer. It is 99% effective, which is amazing. The videos of the girls that are very ill have been unsubstantiated and people have said there have been these mouth studies. The mouth studies weren't real. Um, although, and I give this a that there are chronic fatigue side effects have been reported but that needs to be investigated. They, when people say it makes you more promiscuous, um, if you teach people about safe sex... Evidence shows that sex doesn't actually happen any earlier it doesn't matter when you teach it it doesn't start any earlier but safe sex happening earlier does happen so the boards who have approved the vaccine include the British Medical Association and if we give it to girls and we give it to boys this prevents onward transmission across everybody so we create herd immunity across ev- in everyone and this is the premise for giving vaccines For stop. You don't just give it to one population, you give it to everybody. Diseases for which we need new vaccines include the lovely coronavirus 19, uh, herpes, TB, malaria, HIV. There are loads. And if we can understand how these infections are persistent, this may be the key to preventing and treating these diseases. And there are many, many barriers to new vaccines. It costs a fortune. And... In the 1960s, it took about eight years, and that's now 15 years now, normally for a vaccine to be made, not a pandemic vac- uh, not a pandemic virus vaccine like uh, we got with COVID-19, but for other things. and So this gives you an inkling into why this hasn't happened yet. The cost of a vaccine development grows at about 125 times a year, so three times general inflation. It's about a billion dollars to make one vaccine. But the public expect risk-free vaccines. And so we, most people in science work by this idea of a precautionary principle. So even the theoretical possibility of harm will lead to withdrawal. So it doesn't actually have to cause harm, but a theoretical possibility will lead to its being withdrawal, withdrawn. In addition to which, that you now have to have post-licensing monitoring. So even after you've given the vaccine, you need to basically be able to monitor those people to whom that you have been given the vaccine and this can add up to 25% of your cost which will lead to its economic failure. So future challenges are this expectation of all these things that people want in their vaccines, getting the vaccines to those people who need them and also politics and economics. We find that in 1999, 2.7 million children a year in poor countries um, die as a consequence of diseases that can be prevented by vaccination, and that's the world. That was from the World Bank in, in 1999. One of the biggest problems that we currently face would be um, a lack of scientific know-how and the the wonderful anti-vax movement. Um, who generally strike fear and misinformation into most people's understanding of vaccines. So the uptake of vaccines drops because people become frightened because they've been told or misinformed about things. So there's a lot of of, uh, things to think about. We've got the uh, trials of the COVID-19 vaccine on way and I should probably be reporting about that at a later date. So I hope you found this podcast about vaccination of interest and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.